Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Bernie Shakeshift is the founder of the Backtrack program. I recently went up to Armadale and seen the Backtrack program and this guy is the leading authority and he is the way to change the problem we have with youth crime. Bernie Shakeshift, welcome to the Stick Up. Nice to be here, Russell. Good on you. Thank you, mate. mate let, let's let's talk about this program now. I was blown away, and and um, me and my girl, we had a bit of a look at the the documentary about it, and she started crying. She was just and our tears of joy, like that's how touching and and how effective your program is. How did it all come about? Tell us a bit about your background. Where did it all kick off for you? Oh, look, a uh, bit of a wild kid at school, you know. Yeah. Came from a really loving family, but um, uh, shit, if you, uh, if I was going into school now, I, I guarantee they would go uh, dyslexic, ADHD, opposition behavioural defiance disorder. I'd go on all those rides, you know. Yeah, yeah. So school was a pretty traumatic sort of place for me. Yeah. Uh, couldn't read and write properly, so I learnt better to be the class clown or the idiot. Yeah. Uh, than the dumb kid. Um, yeah. So, look, struggled along, sampled a few schools. Um, uh, I kind of grew up in Armadale. I did my primary school years there and um, uh, then finished my high school off in Sydney. But uh, uh, the Sydney thing was just never going to work out um, yeah. for a kid that was used to running around the paddocks, a bit like letting a feral cat out of a potato sack, you know? Yeah. Um, you see a lot of you in the kids that you work with today. Yeah, look, I can empathise that stuff, you know. Yeah. Look, my background's nowhere near as tough as some of the kids that we're um, working with, but it's the same stuff, man. If you're not accepted in society and you don't feel good at something and you just don't have the right people in your life, um, stuff gets really hard. And then, you know, yeah. the kids that we're working with come from ten times worse sort of experience, but um, I can empathise with that stuff, you know. They talk about one in four kids now uh, in a first-world country, Australia, don't go to school. Um, that's a quarter of the kids yeah. right across this beautiful country not going to school. Where do we think that's going to end up, you know, yep. um, usually in trouble? A lot of your program's based on interaction with animals. Yeah. Is that where the love of animals was sort of? No, that came with me, man. I've always been dragging home yeah. um, busted pigeons and stray dogs and whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just a part of me, but the animals thing is um, it's pretty special with kids. Yeah. Tell us about, like, how did you sort of, like, sort of say, okay, I can do something with these kids. Were you, were you, you were involved in a program up in the NT, weren't you? Yeah, so I worked on stations up in the NT, spent a lot of time in remote communities, kicking around with the countrymen. Uh, that was where my education started, you know, I'm yeah. hanging around with old fellas and, and going. A lot of knowledge there, eh? Uh, just blows my head off. Yeah. Uh, so then I had about seven or eight years with Parks and Wildlife as a dingo trapper. Yeah. But um, them old men in Tennant Creek, Warramunga mob, yeah. and they taught me about wild dogs, you know, yeah. um, out in the bush with them. It was just, um, it was a pretty, um, pretty bizarre kind of thing, you know. Yeah. But um, uh, they they taught me about stuff you can't read in a textbook or yeah. learn at university. I was in jail out there. I was in jail in Alice Springs, and um, my old fellas, mate, are just pillars of knowledge. Yeah, pillars and 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 how to read people, how to get the best out of people. Especially, as you say, the countrymen up there, you know, they're just amazing people and we could learn so much from but we ignore a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, I think we look at dysfunction and, you know, there's lots of stuff that is tough out there, but um, most beautiful people uh, and you kick around with those men and they laugh all day. and uh, They simplify boy. life, don't they? The most important thing to them is just being with each other. Yeah. And that's, that's, if you're, a, and they class themselves as rich people, just yep. having good people around them. Absolutely. I think we, us city like city slickers like myself, we are often overlook that for material things. It's crazy. So let, let's talk about the beginnings of Backtrack. Where did it start? So I came back uh, from the Northern Territory after about 12 years up there. Um, need the job. I, I started off as a youth development officer in Gunnada, mm. um, but Armadale was kind of where I was drifting back home. Um, that was after a divorce and my kids were down here in New South Wales, so I just had to come back. Uh, without the kids, probably would have stayed up there forever. Um, uh, so landed in Armadale and got my first job there. Uh, I was employed by the TAFE. Um, 
and it was a program for kids that um, weren't going to finish school. Uh, so they were year 10 age kind of kids and I had 10 kids from each of the public high schools and um, my job was just to get them work ready. So we had the whole TAFE campus, there was nobody else about. Uh, and so we just started doing stuff with them. But, you know, we're having knife fights and all sorts of shit. They were pretty wild. Mm. Um, and we just kept trying different things. And I think um, this is kind of where it started. You know, we'd go into the world and shed and some kid make a bomb out of the oxy bottle and a cigarette lighter <laughs> and blow a hole in the roof and we'd get kicked out of the freaking world and shed. Uh, so we'd trot off and they had a like a climbing wall thing there. And I thought, oh, shit, this would be the go like, you know. Mm. Um, a bit of teamwork and looking after each other and taking a few risks. But yeah. uh, lunchtime on the first day after their little climbing exercise, and the boss man from TAFE calls me in and says, um, Shake Shaft, what is your whole class doing on the roof of the third story <laughs> building, mate? I said, oh, it looks like they're playing touch footy for me, boss. <laughs> anyway, we got kicked out of the climbing things. Yeah. I thought, oh, shit, we'll do some art stuff, something mm. with their hands, you know. And yeah. uh, about smoke time, highway patrol car pulls into the drive with the Biggest wedge of clay right in the middle of his windscreen, so we got kicked out of the art thing. Thought, fuck, we'll have a crack at computers, you know. It was all just starting to go, and telephones and bits and pieces. And I said, you sure we're safe on these computers, mate? This Department of Education computers got more firewalls and safety. And I said, right, boy, uh, by the end of the afternoon, those kids had downloaded enough inappropriate material to start a state inquiry. So we we got kicked out of um, got kicked out of the computer stuff. And I'm thinking, like. I'm just looking for the hook that catches these kids' attentions. It just settles them for a minute, you know, and mm. um, had a mob of these uh, working dogs at home, feral pups, and hadn't been handled much or anything, you know, and they had this mob of feral kids. Uh, so I went and saw the boss man and said, look, what about if I just bring these pups in and we'll see if we can get these kids a bit engaged with pups and... Uh, Went through the bureaucracy of it, and, mm. and here's where my journey starts, you know. Mm. Yeah, you can't really do that. We'd have to have a vet check and do this. And who's going to do the risk assessment? And I mean, we got kids that are living under the bridge, and you're worried about a six-week-old border collie pop hurting a kid, you know. Mm. So That's anyway. often the case, isn't it? When you're yep. trying to make progression, the bureaucrats get involved, slow everything up, and they just destroy any. I mean, I get so frustrated. Yeah, so I had a workaround. Uh, whatever, I just brought them in the next morning anyway and mm. tipped them out on the lawn there at TAFE and um, while I was in, um, getting another tune-up from the boss about bringing the dogs in, uh, it was the first time I saw these wild, busted kids sitting with these tiny little pups and it was soft and it was gentle and it was respectful and I went, there it is, bang, right there. Um, so I quit that job and um, said, um, you know, it, here's the frustrating part, yeah. Those kids, we had 20 of them supposed to get them work ready. Uh, one had died from suicide, another one had gone to jail. And the other 18, there wouldn't be a business on the planet that would have employed them, you know. They just weren't ready. Mm. But we'd stop the knife fights and they were showing up and we could get some real human sort of interaction going with those kids. And here's the system, now we're supposed to chuck them out. Mm. The job's not finished. Why start a job and not finish it? Mm. So we're supposed to kick them out and start with another 20. Yeah. Didn't seem right to me, um, ethically or morally going, you know, we got so far with them and um, we just need a little bit longer with them. So um, uh, by chance I was um, cracking the shits with it going, I don't know what I'm going to do next but we can't leave them kids and I was at this Christmas party with this guy and we're having a few beers and um, get, you know, uh, get to talking about it and, and probably had the cranks at that stage and said, well, we need to sort this shit out as a shed, you know. So a couple of weeks later, I get this phone call from this random guy and he says, do you remember talking to me at that um, barbecue thing? And I said, oh, a bit scratchy on the details there, buddy. But he said, oh, well, Kevin um, Dupain, I'm the CEO of Regional Australia Bank. He said, oh, I want you to meet me at this address. So I go down to this little spot and some busted old shed down in the, on the edge of town. Is that where your compound is now? Yeah. Yep. Wow. Uh, so I pull up there and there's Kev and he's got the mayor and the local member and he throws me this set of keys and says, well, there's a shed, go and fix this shit. So that's where we started. Wow. Look at what you built now. Like you've got a pretty – like I, I was up there. I can be a testament to it. Like what you've got there, what you've built is amazing. But I just want to go back, mm. back and let's let's talk about – because you touch my heart. When a kid comes into your program, you'd said, we let the dogs go. Yep. Can, you, can you tell us the process about that? Yeah, look, the animals are beautiful. If you ask the kids what it is about the dogs, 
and we keep about 30 working dogs. First thing they always say is, like, the dog doesn't judge her, you know, yeah. and doesn't care what colour your skin is. The dog don't know if you can read or write. Read or write, whether you've been to jail, doesn't give a shit. So we get to start with this point going, you know what, the way you treat that dog is how that dog will respond to you. Um, so we can start with this clean slate. Um, it's pretty interesting when you watch it because we know all the dogs and they're, they're like people, man. They've all got different personalities. And um, the right dog will pick that kid out, you know. Um, if it's a sad dog that likes to stay alone, it'll be the sad kid that likes to stay alone a little bit, you know. Mm. The dog that never shuts up, uh, be the kid that never shuts up. They all come in on mute while they're working out what's going on here. Mm. Um, so you let the, all the dogs go when the kid comes in, yeah? Yeah. Mm. The right dog just drifts up to the kids and they'll just hang around with them, you know. Um, mm. And that can change over time or whatever, but uh, they're just in every aspect of what we do now. It's how we get the crime rates down was with those damn dogs. Um, yeah. There's only two local government areas in New South Wales with long-term juvenile crime stats going down. Uh, and Armadale is down nearly 50%. Like it's ridiculously uh, sliding where everything else is going up. Yeah. How do we do that? Uh, you know, the national stats will tell you that 20% of the kids will do 80% of the damage. So you start concentrating on those 20% of the kids, and I'm telling you, we have that 20%. Yeah. Um, you concentrate on those 20% of the kids and do something that catches their attention and is interesting and they're getting some kind of learning out of, um, but you do it at times of high risk. Um, so when the kids are out on the piss and drugging and whatever else goes on on a Friday and Saturday night is where most of the, the damage is done. Mm. Uh, so we take the kids and travel in this working dog high jump events. They're at all... Yeah, because I tried contacting you on Saturday and you are away doing the dog yep. stuff. I, went to, I wanted to catch up with you on Saturday and you are away yep. doing some events with the dogs. Yep. Yeah. So that's what we do. And we've never had a spare suit. Uh, kids love those dogs. Um and the working dog high jump events are pretty big. You know, we've had a world record and won two Australian titles with the kids. Mm. So it's doing a few things. A, it's getting them out of town at times of high risk. And B, they're getting this connection uh, with this animal that isn't judging them. Yeah. But the community get to see these kids in a different light. Because yeah. normally they're the kids running around on the street at night and causing trouble. Um, here they see them at the show, you know. Yeah. And again with those dogs, you know, a lot of the kids that we work with are Indigenous. Yeah. Um, so to see those people that would normally not talk to those kids, they're just uh, um, they're a starting point, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's your dog. Look what you kids just did. I can speak from personal experience. Traumatised kids are healed in love, you know, and that mm -hmm. dog gives them the healing, gives them the, the unconditional love, and that's where the, the healing starts. I, I, I relate to it straight away. Yep. That dog's offering that kid that's void of love unconditional love and that's where that kids heal i think that's when the healing journey starts that intergenerational trauma that you know because they don't come from not many of them come from very functional family no so that's a big job of yours too sort of educating the parents isn't it yeah look uh, a lot of our kids um uh, look even the parents are so dysfunctional some of them don't know them. a lot mm. of our kids are in under the care of the minister in out of home care as well um so I think if you don't have that belonging, that connection to something. Mm. Um, so we work with families wherever we can, yep. but where they're not there, then kind of got to replace it in a way, you know. You become the family, yeah, Yeah. amongst their peers. Tell us what you do. Like you've got, and the compound, I went there the other day, you've got a classroom mm -hmm. where there is no rules, as you say. Can you explain that concept? Yeah. Uh, crazy guys only start here. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing a kid hears when he walks through that front gate for the very first time is you can't get kicked out of here. Because if you've been kicked out of school and kicked out of home and kicked out of the shopping centre and kicked out of the footy team, um, life gets full of failures, you know. Mm. So um, it's a really clear message. Um, we're not going to bring you in here and then kick you out. And that goes back to those TAFE days. Don't start a job that you're not going to finish. If those kids need us, then we need to be there. So you can't get kicked out. You can choose not to be there. Um, you know, um, the second thing that they'll hear is there's no rules down here, but we have agreements. And the kids sit down and the workers sit down with them and we work through these agreements. Um, you know, we don't expect the kids to all to be best friends or whatever, but uh, everyone down there has at some stage had some kind of a hard time and that's what we're doing, is healing some of that trauma. So you can't get kicked out and there's no rules, but there are agreements. Um, so, um, you know, we've got some of the most violent kids in our community. I reckon I've only seen two or three punches thrown down there in mm. 20 years. And uh, one of the agreements they have is keep your hands and your feet to yourself. 
Just don't go swacking on with kids all the time, you know? You want to do that shit, take it down the street. I like what you've got there. So, and I remember you saying to me on Sunday that, you know, if the kid thinks he's tougher, we'd most probably employ a kid that's most probably a bit tougher than him and he'll work that out real quick. Yep. So, uh, some of the people you got working now are former kids that went through there? Yeah. So, um, I'll just talk you through it. There's yep. three kind of parts of the program. Yep. One is with the younger kids. When we started, it was 16, 17-year-olds. Now most of our referrals are coming at 10, 11, and 12. So yeah, we're not right. seeing kids make the transition from primary school into high school. Um, <clears throat> once you're kicked out of school, you're in trouble. So we employ a school teacher. Um, we do most of the classroom stuff in the paddock or in the shearing shed. Um, and, you know, the first 12 months is kind of sorting out legal issues and finding somewhere safe for them to stay. So it's kind of like 25 of those kids. Mm. Then we got this little patch of kids in the middle, five or six of them that too old for the school stuff. We've, we've gone down that track, but not old enough really or handy enough yet um, to employ them. So there's about five or six kids that float in that middle country. Mm. And then we employ 35 young fellas. Uh, so we have a for-profit business where if no one else will give a kid a job, uh, we give give the kid a job. Um, dumbest business model in the world. Um, but it works. Well, it works. They keep showing up, you know, but... <laughs> Uh, the 35 kids, half your half your workforce might not show up on any given day. Pretty hard to run a business like that. But yeah. anyway, they're all kids that have come through the program and, you know, they're in their early 20s. Some of them are doing really, really well now. Mm. Got their own cars, got their own families. You can see that on that documentary trailer, those young fellas talking about being the dads that they never kind of had in their life. Um, pretty special. So you've got this blend of kids now, these older kids, and all the young fellas coming through know who they are. It'll be uncle or his brother's mate or someone they know who these yeah. kids are and, and they're the real deal. And they're the kids that, you know, had been in and out of jail and, and finally got their shit together uh, and, and we employ them. So it's a pretty neat thing when the young, tough, superhero kid comes through the gate for the first time and he's yeah. looking at these older fellas yeah, going, hmm, right, well, just... Well, there's a bigger shark here, huh? <laughs> Multiple bigger sharks. Yeah. Um, but it's good because they get to look up to these guys and they see them through a different lens. That first time in their life that their role model's not dysfunctional, he's not a tough guy, a drug dealer or a violent person. Mm. And look, some of these kids come out of multi-generations when nobody's had a job or whatever, you know. Yeah. There's been a lot of trauma and all sorts of shit in their lives, but uh, one of the first contracts we got was uh, with a local housing provider yeah. where they came and saw us and went, look, we can't find a maintenance man uh, in the whole town that will go into this block of flats. Are pretty, yeah. pretty wild sort of um, flats, you know. Um, uh, but most of our kids live there, yeah. or uh, uncles or aunties or someone, so that they can go in there. Yeah. Not a problem. So uh, first we went in there, uh, and here's these kids, and yeah. you know, auntie or grandma comes out going, "What are you boys doing here? I'm taking them rubbish bins out and." Um, picking up them beer bottles and mowing them lawns, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's our job, Artie, you know. Yeah. yeah. And you watch them all sitting down and having a bit of a think about this. And uh, second week you come back, it's like uh, little Johnny's coming out of lockup next week. Do you yeah. reckon he could hang around with you guys and take yeah. them garbage bins out? So now you've got this trail of 11 and 12-year-olds that don't want to go to school. They want to go to work to hang out with these older guys. Yeah. Pretty cool. And you... And you give them kids, let's talk through a lot of the skills that you give them, like you get them a lot of tickets, because then I want to go into the story about when the disaster happened up there. Mm -hmm. So what sort of training are you giving them? These kids have just got to learn to have a win if you can't read and write. And yeah. some of those kids can't write their own names. So yeah. it starts with our teacher. We've got to have the world's best teacher. Yeah. And she'll do one-on-one -on -one stuff with them, you yeah. know. And um, you can't sit them in a classroom. That's what they've come out of. And yeah. no one wants to be like Bernie as a kid yeah. and the dumb kid, you know. Yeah. So we've got to get that reading and writing up to a level that they can just get through life. Um, uh, so we got that. But then while we're doing that, just remember these kids have never had many wins, you know. Mm. So we've got to start having wins. And the whole time we're looking at what might make this kid more employable down the track, you know. Mm. So we start off doing little things. Um, most employers are pretty happy if you go in there with a first aid certificate, you know, mm. um, a white card so you can go onto a building site. We don't know whether they're going to be builders or not, mm. but we just keep getting these little certificates and chainsaw certificates and... Uh, you know, forklift licenses and 
So by the time a kid gets to sort of 16 or 17, he's got this whole swag of paperwork of these things that he's passed. Mm. And those things take time. You know, we put them in rural ops so that they can do a bit of welding and they can do some carpentry and fix small motors. And we just keep doing all these with the boys, these blokey things, you know, yeah. uh, as well as some music stuff and yeah. got to mix it up because they're all... Art, the art and the, the, art. the sculptures and stuff yep. that you guys are making are phenomenal. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. So we just keep building this little thing of winning while we're sorting out all the other shit as well, um, you know. Um, it's important to win. It's it's important to to have that little win, something to be proud of. I, I get it. I get that because them kids are being told by society what little shit bags they are and they should yep. be locked and they should be kicked in the ass and they should be bashed and that, they all these horrible things. And when they're winning, 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 building confidence, the dog's involved in it. The dog's giving them unconditional love. It's the perfect formula for healing and yep. self-belief. And breaking the cycle. Yeah. You know, we had the police minister down there a few months ago come and had a look and we were walking through the shed with her at the end yeah. of the day and the boys don't know who she is, you know. Um, Tell us that story about what one of the kids said to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're walking around and she's asking the kids questions and they're really good, you know. Um, I'll look you in the eye and talk to you about what they're doing. And um, uh, she was asking some pretty intelligent questions and, uh, and then she sort of said like, uh, so we were there with three or four older Indigenous boys um, that are all boys through the program and are working there now and got their own families. And, uh, and she said like, it's closing the gap thing, you know. Um, what do you see when you're down here um, in this compound with, with the closing the gap stuff, you know? And the kid looks at her and goes, oh, for fuck's sake, missus. Um, I'm going, oh, shit, that's a policeman. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, leave them be who they are, you know. Um, our kids go to school. Um, we have jobs. Um, we've learnt to read and write down here. Uh, I live in my own house, you know, uh, and giving back. And they go, we don't see any of the gap thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Pretty uh, special when those boys uh, can talk at that level and can sure. see it for what it is. And that is, you know, that's amazing. It's ama the, the program's amazing. And just talk us through, I want to, you're telling me about the story about the natural disease, the one that had the, the tornado up. Okay. Tell, us, tell us about that. Let me just, uh, I'll just run back at yeah, them yeah, because it'll sure. help make sense yeah. on this. So. Uh, there's a, a model uh, of living, I guess you would call it, called the Circle of Courage. It comes from yeah. the First Nations mob in Canada. Yeah. Um, we run our business off it. Um, and they got in touch with us oh, years ago and went, do you want to know why your business works? And I went, fuck, love to know that because I've got no idea. Mm. They said, when you get these four things in balance, whether it's your personal life, whether it's your business, or whether it's your whole community, you get these four things in balance, everything will be going well. First one is belonging, connection. You must yep. feel part of something. Validation, yes. Yep. The second one is mastery, yep. uh, learning. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a university degree or how to do your shoelace up as yep. long as you're learning something. Yeah. Next one is independence, having a say in your life. That's why we go, there's not a magistrate or a parent can make a kid come down there. Yep. You choose to come down or you choose not to. Yep. Um, the kids call that one independence, owning your own shit, being yep. responsible for your actions. Yep. Yep. And the last one is generosity. Yeah. Must be doing something for somebody else. Yeah. So it's a big part of our business, and every time there's a natural disaster or something, all our kids, we put them through RFS training, for example, you know. We yeah. go and help with the cleaning up after droughts or cleaning up after bushfires, all fighting the bushfires. Um, good sport for young men and yeah. good again for the community to be seeing yeah. the good stuff that is in these kids yeah. as well. So we had this tornado a couple of years ago rip through Armadale, Uh it was about 40 kilometres long. It started out of town, went right through the middle of town, and it was fair income, like chucking cars around and roofs off houses. It was every power line was down. It was a big, big mess, um, millions upon millions of dollars worth of damage. So our boys uh, get a phone call like at 5 o'clock in the morning. I didn't even know we'd had it. Um, and they said, you know, uh, their nan's house had, had the roof ripped off it, trees down everywhere. Could we go and help? I said, of course you can, you know. So by the time I got into town, the boys had been down, got chainsaws and trucks and bobcats and they were up on site and uh, ripping in, chopping these trees down on the road. And uh, The boss man from the disaster recovery thing showed up and went, stop, 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 down tools, you know. And this is a work zone, it's a building site if you like and you can't just come in here, it's a disaster zone, you know. You have to have tickets to do all this sort of stuff, you just can't come in and start goofing around with chainsaws. And, 
thank God the supervisor that was with him had taken a big pile of wedge of paperwork and had it on the front, mm. on the dashboard of the mm. truck. And um, he said, boys, down tools, come over here. Well, this guy was there, the big boss man. And uh, he said, show of hands who he's got a chainsaw certificate, you know. Every hand goes up and they're all wearing their PPE gear and everything, you know, it's all safe. Mm. And uh, Who's got the skid steer ticket, you know. Uh, most of the boys have got their hands up for the guy driving the bobcat and filling up the thing. On and on it went. Has anyone here got a white card? Every hand goes up. Mm. Uh, and the poor old fellow was just standing there shaking his head going, well, I guess back to work. Mm. <laughs> so the boys kept him back into it and we finished that section and said, well, we'll duck around the corner here and, and start in this street if you like. And the guy said, well, well, no, you can't do that. Like, um, We haven't got any more stop and go guys. They're on every street and every corner. And uh, again, the supervisor called the boys in and went, show of hands, boys, who's got a uh, traffic control ticket. Half the hands go up. How do you want us to put in an extra set of traffic controllers, you know? Uh, so back they go to the shed and bring all the traffic control gear up. Now we've got another street opened up. So we went to um, a disaster recovery meeting a couple of days later. And this is with all the big services in there. Uh, and um, they were talking about who has the capacity to respond quickest across a whole range of different things, whether it was chainsaw stuff or tip trucks or one of our funders, Kennards, gave us the world's biggest chipper, couldn't get a chipper anywhere and, um, you know, and we're talking about thousands and thousands of trees down. So we've got our own chipper, we've got traffic control guys, we've got all these blokes with tickets. You know, Backtrack sat on the very top of that board as the fastest responders in half a dozen different categories mm. for about a whole week. How uh, good. Pretty special moment, you know. It's special for them kids to see that, yep. to be a part of that. To be a, and that gives them a sense of belonging and the joy they get from doing good. I think, you know, I know for myself, you know, I was always, you know, amongst your peer group, the negative peer group, mm. you praise for the bad you do. Yeah. But, you know, when you go, when you come in and get, you know, the community's blessing for the good you do, it's 10 times, 100 times better. And I think it, um, unintended consequences as well, you yeah. know. Uh, the cops were at all those meetings, you know, and yeah. cops and our kids and traditionally come from different, yeah, different walks of life. Yeah. Uh, but the cops are seeing these kids and then the council's seeing these kids and the RFS is seeing these kids and the SES and as well as the community. Yeah. Um, everyone's starting to see the good in this uh, and over time that starts to snowball. You know, we have probably the best relationship now uh, with the cops of any of our programs or yeah. any other town that I go into. Yeah. When we first started, you know, we were knuckle we were just loggerheads with the cops yeah. all the time. They're going, Oh great, here we go. Every bloody criminal in Armadale's all here in one compound, you know. Yeah. And the cops would pull in there in the early days and the kids would be poof over the fence, gone. Yeah. Now, uh, we got coppers that come down and take kids on driving lessons, helping them get their 120 hours up. They yeah. come down uh, once a fortnight and the kids make them coffee while we're teaching the kids the barista skills and bits and pieces. It's all this uh, mastery, yeah, the learning yeah. part that also goes with the generosity and just the language that's changed with the, the kids and the police now, it's really, really interesting. You know, we had a big car wash um, thing down there just before the Christmas holidays, it's the kids would try and teach social enterprise wherever we can with them. Yeah. Uh, so they're doing this car wash thing. Well, the highway patrol car's coming in there and um, the kids are washing his car while he has a coffee and stands around chatting with the kids. That shit starts to break down on the street then. Um, mm. They have more empathy for where the kids are coming from and have a little bit of understanding and it works both ways. You know, um, for those young fellas to be here and the older boys go, you know what? He's not bad, that fellow. Like, yeah. He's just gone doing a job or whatever, yeah. but here he is helping me out in his own time with his own motor car. Those little things uh, make all the difference. When the magistrates just drop into the shed and say hello and how's it going and what did you think about that this morning, you know, and, and when's your dad getting out and um, what is it? It's about relationships then and that sense of belonging and, and people pulling together. And uh, cuts these kids an enormous amount of slack. You know, yeah. I don't know... I can't imagine that there's a magistrate in the world that goes, gets a really good feeling about sending a 10-year-old kid uh, to a juvenile detention facility. Yeah. If there are alternatives, bet they would take those alternatives every time. And if it works, uh, even better. You know, <clears throat> the 
keep one juvenile in detention now, I think the latest numbers that came out of Victoria, a million bucks a year, a million dollars a year to put one kid in juvenile detention and you'll know the stats better than anyone. Once they go in, the likelihood of them going back in again is over and over and over. So I think we've got an 80, 80, 79% recidivism rate in Australia. That's it. Crazy. Crazy. So if we know that's going to happen and we know that there are solutions, why the hell are we not taking those solutions? That's the whole thing with your program. I, I walked away and I said, if that program was available to me as a 16-year-old, it would have worked for me. That's got everything mm. that I've was ever wanting. Like with the benefit of hindsight, with the work I've done on myself, that's, that's what I wanted. A sense of belonging, you know. I wanted to be loved unconditionally and that sort of stuff. And 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 you've got it all: skill, building skills, building confidence. Because I was I never had much confidence as a kid. And mm. that's those every certificate those kids get. It's it's an investment in their confidence. And the mentors, you know. Uh, I think if you talk to most people once they've got out the other side, there's someone that you kind of look up to. You know, yeah. whether it's when you're young or older or whatever. Yeah. But if you've got good solid people around you that you can talk to and have honest conversations and and we can talk about the difference between being a boy and a man and yeah. how do you treat women and we can talk about the heavy duty stuff yeah. all the time having that while you've got this learning and the bits and pieces um Is that, I, you create you create a, a place there what i can see what you can the growth comes in vulnerability right mm-hmm. being real you encourage these kids to be real that's where the growth comes from. And what I, what I can just see throughout your whole program, even the way you structure your the classrooms and everything like that, that's them kids being at their vulnerable best. Yeah, look, you know, the beauty of our funding model uh, will be something like $8 million bucks this year and, and less than 5% of that is government funding. Um, when you think about what we're starting with, these are the 5 or 10% of kids that nobody else will, other services won't take, you know. Yeah. Then we have a 90% success rate of getting them 90%. into jobs yeah. or back into full-time um, educational training, yeah. 90%. So these kids, and when you look at that costs thing, um, we still have kids that get locked up. There's no question we're not perfect, yeah. um, but it's not the volume that we used to be going through. And we'll defy those 80% uh, numbers of being locked back up, you know. There's only occasionally that ones and twos will go back in again, but it's a tiny percentage of the kids. The rest of them we're getting through. Let's talk about why wouldn't you take government funding? Uh, look, we have had government funding before. The Gillard government was the first to give us untied government funds, yeah. uh, and that's what I'm looking for is untied. Um, what do you, what, can you explain what do you mean untied? Right, uh, funding in, in this country is siloed. Uh, it's one of the dumbest things I've seen, yeah, so... If you're in the education department, you just get money to teach kids to read and write, yeah? Mm. But if that kid's going to court tomorrow morning or he's sleeping rough under the bridge, the education department don't tackle that. Mm. But if you don't tackle the mental health or living under the bridge or going to get locked up piece, that's the stuff that's in the kid's um, front of mind. That's his boss. So we've got to get that shit cleaned up first. Then we look at mental health. You know, it's like... And, and everything has its place. I'm not here to be the negative Nelly, but um, if the councillors come into town to just work on mental health, our kids don't go to those um, places. Yeah. They're just not going to go there. You've got to go and see a GP and get a referral and you've got to wait three months yeah. to get in to see a councillor. And if you mess that up, well, then you're back out on the waiting list. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't kind of work. But if you're just trying to tackle mental health by going to see a councillor, and we have to do this stuff in a holistic way, yeah? Mm. And while funding continues to be siloed, just in mental health, just in housing, just in... Uh, while that stuff continues to happen, you can't take this holistic approach. And we take the holistic approach. If a kid needs to be fed, we feed them. Uh, yeah. If they need a bed and somewhere safe to sleep, then we provide that. If they need to learn how to read and write, we provide that. If they don't have any clothing, we provide that. Yeah. If they need a hand in court, we help that. Yeah. But you can't just do that, oh, well, this doesn't week fall we're just going to do doesn't fall under that banner, so yep. we can't help. That's it. Julia Gillard was an amazing woman. She changed my life. She brought in the Royal Commission Institutional Responses mm-hmm. to Child Sexual Abuse. She had great insight, and um, I'm forever grateful to her. The, and the problem is with the government thing is the regulation that they bring with their funding. Yep. And I think, would it be fair to say, if you done it their way, it wouldn't work? 
I can guarantee it. Uh, you know, I did it their way uh, for a lot of years, and that's why I went, look, this is stupid. Yeah. And this is as crazy as I've seen anything. People know that it's not kind of working, yet we put billions of dollars into it. And I'm not saying nothing works. You know, there'll be bits and pieces that yeah. do work. But um, what about the kids that it isn't working for? What about our extraordinary waste of money? And Because uh, there's a lot of wasted money on it. And this... And these people that are banging the drums that say lock them up and, you know, and, and you know, put them in adult jail, teach them a lesson or anything. Like, I, I was that kid. I went to an adult jail at 16, going on 17 years old, and I spent 23 years. Deterrent sentencing doesn't work. Well, you're a living example of that, yeah. you know. We'll teach you a lesson, yeah, and mm. um, how to completely ruin your life for 23 years. Yeah. Um, we've got – I just don't understand Australia with this lock-up mentality, even at the age, you know. We're trying to raise the age – uh, detention when there are so many good models all around the world have a look at the Scandinavian countries okay. they're trying to work out what to do with all their empty prisons yeah yeah they're you closing know? prisons yeah even they're... in the US when we copied their model years ago now if you have a look at the the rehab program so with kids coming out and you would know this as well as anybody on the planet it's that when you come out if you don't have somewhere safe or whatever and you mm. just send up the road with your plastic bag and you've got no telephone and you've got no money and you're not on Sunlink or whatever uh, you come out with no skills you're in prison yep. you might you might learn how to fucking sew body bags and that's about it you know yep. a couple of put together headphones and there's no jobs for that but you need practical skills and what you're providing these kids is the fundamental skills to be employable mm -hmm. I think that's so important that's so important but along the way the dogs and you know the campfires and 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 the the bonding and that teamwork together. You give them a sense of long. It's it's so healing your program. I know mm. you know I don't realize I, I, you mostly do, but realize how healing your program is, and how touching your program is to others. I, I just and I and I come away and I, I I've been on social media and I've been talking it, talking it up so much. I'm so impressed with what you're doing. You know the kids are involved in in team sports. They've got mm -hmm. they're, a sports a big thing for the kids. Yep, I uh, got our own touch footy team and basketball team. And I'd have a run with them too. I'd have a run. I haven't had a gun. I'd mostly rip my hamstrings off my fucking bones. Right <laughs> but also, let's talk about the farm. Like yep. you, were, you were donated a farm. What, what? So we've been going for eighteen years, and then uh, a guy I went to school with, um, uh, for whatever reasons, you know, his mum passed away, and the farm wasn't where he was going into the future. He came and saw me one afternoon and said, um, Ben, I'm, we're selling up the farm. I'm going to sell the cattle uh, next week and I'm going to donate all the profits of the cattle to Backtrack. And I went, oh, shit, hang on, man. We've had this dream our whole lives. Just um, let me see if I can find a block where we can adjust them. So rather than sell them, because cattle were going through the roof, the mm. prices were still going up. Um, so I said, just give us a week and let me see if I can find a, somewhere to adjust them and... Um, came back and saw me the next weekend and went, oh, I've changed my mind about the cattle. And I went, oh, shit, damn, missed that one. Uh, and he said, I'm going to give you the cattle, but I'm also going to give you my half of the farm. Well, I thought he was kidding. Um, took me a week to kind of go, this is for real. Mm. So anyway, uh, here we are now. We've got cattle and we've got half a farm. And I'm thinking, shit, what do you do with half a farm? Mm. Um, uh, so the bloke that owned the other half, um, he wasn't in the donating space. Mm. And it was just lucky that one of our um, long-term supporters, a uh, guy from up here in Sydney, um, Rob was down up in Armidale for a wedding mm. and uh, I was telling him about this crazy deal, still shaking my head going, shit, i got half a farm and all those cattle. And um, he said, oh, come on, let's have a look. Uh, so I took him out there that afternoon and um, I get this text message from him the next morning. I'm having a pretty good week at this yeah. stage. And he said, ah, oh, look, I've been up all night with my wife talking about this and... He said, we've kind of got three three options. Um, he said, the first one is, look, what about if uh, I buy the other half of the farm and, you know, I can bring my kids up from Sydney on weekends and do bits and pieces, and um, but you guys just use it and run it. And he went, ah, if you and I have a fallout, that's going to get all sorts of awkward. So we don't really like option one. said, so option two is I'll just give you an interest-free loan for the million bucks. You buy the other half, pay us back when, whenever you can. No time frame on that. But he said, ah, then you're going to be so focused on how you're going to pay me back and not concentrating on the shit that you need to concentrate on. So we don't really like option two. He said option three is, uh, I'm just going to buy it for you. We don't normally do a gift this big, but we're just going to buy it for you and away you go, son. Yeah. 
So in a period of two weeks, um, we'd been gifted this farm and the cattle uh, and the vision and the stuff out in front, particularly with those Indigenous kids that some of them probably will never will have a home. Um, have a home. Yeah. Um, having a thing that's going to be there for them and their kids and their grandkids, um, that's what it's about. So we're putting a pinch that one off Martin Luther King, you know that famous speech he had, I have a dream. I have a dream, yeah. He didn't say, I have a fucking plan. He said, yeah. I have a dream. Yeah. And I have a dream now uh, yeah. that I want to see that joint 100 years down the track with those kids and those grandkids and here's this little bunch of kids caring for a little bunch of country and um, yeah. and we're out and we've been there for 12 months now and um, uh, just touched by people's generosity, making this dream become a reality. Some pretty cool thing to watch, and then seeing those older boys with their own kids out there running around—they're only just starting to get this concept of boy, like this is this is ours, isn't it? Yeah. This is our little family home, and it's kind of where it came from, you know. Uh, with the chair of the board, we we often talk about Christmas time as a real shit time for our kids, you know. As soon as we close those gates and workers have a spell, and um, they're back in stolen cars and shit, and you know. Um, we have a place to go at Christmas time. Those kids kind of don't, mm. you know. Everyone's getting presents and being merry and jolly and mm. those kids are back in the Bronx and <coughs> doing it tough. So that was where the original idea was, came from, was to go, what about if we could create a place that these kids can come back to whenever they need it? Mm. Amazing. I'll, as I said, I'm going to go up there in a couple of weeks. I'll really... Um, all my social media supporters and, and that sort of thing, I really want everyone to get behind this. Is this, this, I get so many people ask me, mm. and, and I didn't, and I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, I was a bit lost. What is the solution? Mm. I just found it. I just found it. And, and that's, I'll just go, you know, you know, backtrack. You know what I mean? I'll say, look at the backtrack model. That is the solution. I've thought of army diversion programs and all that sort of stuff. That might work for some, but mm. yours is all encompassing. I think. Short-term stuff uh, has problems when you're dealing with these kids that come from such traumatic backgrounds. Yeah. You've got to be there for the long haul. It's no different um, to having your own kind of family, I reckon, really. Yeah. You know, you do whatever you got to do to get your kids across the line. And these kids, if you go down there and ask those kids to describe backtrack in a word, well, I'll give you an example when we get there. Yeah. I'm going to guarantee... Uh, 99% of the answers will be around family, belonging, connection, yeah. friendship, yeah. second family here all the time, you know. And we don't want to be the family. We're not. You only get one family. But if, if that's not around and it's not working in a functional way, then we become a second family for them and for we treat sure. them just the same. Where does all this love come from, you mate? Where, like you've got a big art for this sort of stuff. Mm. I don't know. You know what? Um, uh, we got... Uh, Saying it backtrack, um, sometimes, some days you're the dog and some days you're the tree. Mm. Um, <laughs> I was lucky enough uh, just before I left school, um, we had a school chaplain. I think in hindsight this is probably where some of it comes from. I mean, my dad worked in, in the social welfare sector as well, so I always had stray kids coming around and, um, you know, and understood that. Well, that was just grew up with that, you know. Mm. If somebody needs a hand, you give them a hand. So pretty lucky to have parents that were in that category. Mm. Um, but uh, the school chaplain went to a Catholic school. Uh, he used to take um, a handful of old boys and a handful of, usually it was a school prefect and that sort of stuff, but uh, take them over to India. He'd worked for 30-odd years in India um, in all sorts of missions and different spots and... Um, Somehow or other, I ended up on this trip to India. Uh, I think what was sixteen or seventeen, and um, I reckon at that time in my life, Russell, I was going like things are pretty shit. Like this is really hard. This mm. growing up business mm. and what you want to do and no purpose, huh? No purpose and making your own purpose and getting into more and more trouble and you know and I was skating on thin ice um, by some margin. Anyway. One of the things that happened there in India was um, the old boys went up north or whatever and the young fellas um, we had to go and work in this hospital thing uh, in Calcutta. And I hadn't been paying much attention at school or whatever and uh, this little nun came in to talk to us and it's in India and it's stinking hot and it's noisy and it's whatever. 
This lady came in. I just went, what? Who is this? Like, we talk about presence in, in our dogs, you know. Mm. It's one of the things we look for or, or that one person that you just everyone stops and says, who the hell? So we sat and listened to this lady talk uh, for an hour to us and I was gobsmacked. I was almost in a trance going like, I've never met somebody like that. Uh, it turns out I was the only one in the group that didn't know that was fucking Mother Teresa. Wow. Uh, and the hospital we were working in was the hospice for the dying in the middle of Calcutta. And um, um, and we were there for a week or something and I was helping this little kid and the hospice for the dying is a place where people are dying on these little camp stretches. Yeah. But, you know, there's hardly any medical equipment. There's certainly no Panadols or painkillers yeah. or... Um, drips or, you know, people are just dying slowly and there was a young kid there about, must have been about my age, so um, didn't have any language. Um, but I could see he was in pain and my job was to take his bandages off. Uh, he had a leg infection and the street kid and the maggots had eaten all the flesh off his leg and he was just dying slowly and uh, I had to take the bandages off and go and wash them and then put them back on and um, I was holding that kid's hand and when he passed away, uh, I think the third morning I was there and I went, you know what, not not one whimper or complain or whinge or whatever. And I went, crikey, you know, um, if you think you're doing it tough yourself, buddy, better just um, have a little shake of the head. and Humbles your home. Humbles. Mm. So, you know, I went back see? and continued to be wild, but um, seeing that lady and what she was doing, it just never kind of left me and... And I remember the only bit that I really remember was she was kind of saying to us, what, what are you guys doing here, you know? Because yeah. some of the older guys were going, fuck, we're going to come back here and work Mother Teresa's Hospice for the Dying and help out yeah. all these poor people. And she was going, what are you doing over here in our country, you know? And you've got enough, sh well, she probably didn't say yeah. enough shit, you know, but yeah, yeah, you've got enough dramas in your own thing. Go and sort out your own backyard first. Yeah. Never kind of left me that. A lot of these kids you work with and a lot of, you know, the ones that you've changed their lives would see you in the same light. Your passion is, you know, is reflected in them kids' behaviour. Mm -hmm. That's what, what what you're seeing, the results in your scene in these kids change is your passion. Mm -hmm. And you, you can, then I, I can see it. I see these kids walking around and I see, you know, they're carrying your passion for that program and, you know, and that change, that self-belief and that healing. Healing's massive and kids that have suffered so much trauma and I look and I see it I mm. see these coppers wanting to bash these kids and especially mm. and, and I just go they're, they're walking the streets because home ain't a safe place yep yep need to get that level of empathy with people to go you know and don't certain kids aren't born bad yeah it's shit that happens to them and if it's out of your control and that stuff happens and where's the damn empathy and to mm. go look, just see this for what it is and and let's try something different. That's a big, what you've also done also in, in, with the interactions of the police, because then police are indoctrinated. Mm. You know, they're, they're, it's intergenerational. They've got the old bad head cop yep. coming through saying, this is how you treat them, that's how you train them. That's a massive achievement. Yeah. That goes a long way yep. in allowing these kids to grow, you know. Yeah. I really want to steer all my listeners in and I want them to, so let's talk about the documentary, how the, the docu documentary came about. Yeah, so... Um Kathy Scott's the documentary maker. She's done some really crazy stuff all around the world. Um, we were just lucky enough uh, to have her come up and visit us, and she kind of fell in love with us. And um, uh, as a volunteer, really, just with borrowed gear, started filming uh, these kids. So we had Kathy follow these kids around for two and a half years. What I really like about it is that it's, it's not just a short snippet, you know. Mm. The program's not a 26-week program. We're in it for a long mm. haul. Mm. And to be able to follow those kids, you can see their growth, uh, you know, as they're working through their traumas and we're sorting all that courtship, all the stuff we've been talking about, you mm. can visually see it there. And, mm. um, and it's real. And they're not actors doing it. They're kids just being who they are. Uh, and part of that spirit and that wild spirit that they have is... I don't care, man. They just call it as it is. Mm. So Kathy followed these guys around for two and a half years uh, and it shows the dogs and that connection and the on the road, on the weekends and 
and kids getting locked up and how sad that is and uh, the collective group of people that really give a shit about these kids all around them and the volunteers and the nonnas that help iron their court clothes and, mm. uh, you know, so you just see this collection of, of why it works uh, mm. and that's because there's a whole community behind that, you know, Tyson um, in that documentary talks about feeling like he had an army behind him. How cool is that, man, when mm. you've been locked up ten times as a kid you or whatever no still s- and then there's an army behind you. I yeah. love that line. So uh, we made that documentary, travelled all over Australia with it, won all the awards, people awards in Sydney and yeah. Melbourne and Adelaide and up in Brisbane. And uh, we even sent a kid across to Texas to uh, open a film festival with it. So it, um, yeah. it really got some great momentum and it, I think it shows the beauty of these kids yeah. and it shows the toughness of the job. Uh, and it shows the answers hanging in for a long haul, man. Mm. Um, and it is the answer. Yeah. It is the answer. Like, we, people jumping up and down. I love the fact it was, man, I'd blame me, as I said, I know now I've got mm. I've got something to say. That is the answer. So that documentary, you can see it on our webpage, Backtrack. It's called www.backtrack.org.au. Yeah. Uh, and in there is the documentary. And then... Uh, so that was made six years has gone past and Kathy just came up and made another short 20-minute one just mm. to go, what does this look like now? And it's a good way to work out whether this shit really works or whether it doesn't and just looked at what were we doing six years ago and where are we at now? Yeah. And that's with the farm and the 100-year dream. But, you know, uh, I think I like that update to the documentary even more than the doco itself because yeah. I'm looking at four of those young men that are all dads and I listen to this common denominator that talks about, you know what, um, my kid will never have to worry about not getting a feed. Um, they will learn to read and write and go to school. Uh, and it's breaking that intergenerational curse. That's it. It's there. And there it is. There's the answer. And How do we break it? There we're going to be the men that we never had in our lives. Isn't that good? I'm going to finish on that. What a way to finish. Bernie Shakeshift, thank you for being on the stick on there. Thanks for having us. <laughs>